Faith Reformed Baptist Church. And I want to say you can trust him. You can trust him. You can, you can just commit your whole life to him, and he will not let you down. You can go out trusting him into situations that are dangerous and he'll use you and bless you. You can trust him. Well, let's open our copy of God's word to the gospel according to Mark, chapter number 14, Mark Chapter number 14. And I want to begin reading in verse number 25. And the reason I'm doing that is because I didn't completely finish the things that I had to say last Sunday evening. So I want to pick up a little bit uh, uh, farther back and uh, then uh, move forward into our subject matter for this evening. Before we read, though, let's go again to the Lord in prayer. So please pray with me and for me. Once again, O oh Lord, in the sweet name of Jesus, I confess to you that I am nothing and I have nothing as you said in the text of Scripture we'll read tonight, the spirit is willing. Oh, but the flesh is so weak. I confess that this evening and I beg you that you would enable me. As you said in John chapter 15, without me, you can do nothing. I found it to be true, Lord. I can do nothing. So unless you anoint and breathe on the message tonight, there will be no life-giving force in it. There will be nothing but words. And they'll either minister life or they'll minister death. And there is no in-between. So I ask you, Lord, to minister life tonight through your word. For your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, beginning in Mark chapter 14, verse number 25. Assuredly, I say to you, I will no longer drink of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, All of you will be made to stumble because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, Even if all are made to stumble, yet I will not be. Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you that today, even this night, before the rooster crows twice, 
you will deny me three times. But he spoke more vehemently. If I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said likewise. Then they came to a place which was named Gethsemane. That means the olive press or the press. And it's an apt name for what took place there. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took Peter, James, and John with him. And he began to be troubled and deeply distressed. And he said to them, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch. He went a little farther and fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. Then he came and found them sleeping and said to Peter, Simon, are you sleeping? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, he went away and prayed and spoke the same words. And when he returned, he found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy and they did not know what to answer him. Then he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? It is enough. The hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Well, uh, last week we were talking about uh, three things that we're going to eventually cover through this passage of Scripture. And, uh, and of course, those three things... Uh, I only covered a couple of them last week, but uh, we talked about how that Jesus revealed the new covenant in our text last week. And then he institutes a reminder of that new covenant. He institutes the Lord's Supper and it serves as a memorial or a reminder every time we partake of it. It reminds us of what Jesus did for us. It is a symbol or a symbolic feast, we may call it. The Lord's table is symbolic in that it pictures the broken body and the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And those are those uh, uh, that those important truths that we must remember. Jesus told his followers, his disciples, he said, uh, as often as you do this, do it in remembrance of me. And uh, so we talked about what a covenant is and uh, defined the word covenant 
and, uh, and several of those things. And we talked about how that uh, Jesus, when he instituted the Lord's table, he offered uh, a piece of bread, he broke bread, and distributed it to his disciples. And the bread represents his body. It does not become his body. And I don't know if I said this clearly last week or not, but I want to be sure that we say it. Uh, there is no saving efficacy in the bread or the wine, the elements of the Lord's Supper. It is symbolic, which is not to say that Christ is not present in any sense in the Lord's table, because he is always present with us, is he not? Mm -hmm. In the person of the Holy Spirit. And the Bible tells us in Revelation chapter number one that he walks in the midst of the churches. Mm -hmm. And so he is present, at least spiritually, in the Lord's table. And he is, uh, I want to say, he's partaking with us. He told his disciples, we'll get to that, that... Uh, he said, I will not drink of this cup again until I drink it new with you in the, my father's kingdom, in the kingdom. Well, the kingdom has come. He has ascended. He has been seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The Holy Spirit has come and indwelt the body of Christ and the church is one in Jesus Christ and when we partake of the Lord's table, i got to believe he's partaking with us. He's enjoying that feast with us. And so the bread is a symbol of his uh, body, the incarnate body of the Son of God, the sinless, flawless body of the Son of God, the beaten and exposed and tortured and spit upon body of the Son of God, the wounded and scarred and dead body that came to life again, was raised, a raised body. His blood is symbolized by that uh, the wine in the cup, and as we said last week, the Blood always showed the presence of the shed blood in those Old Testament sacrifices was just a testimony that a life has been given. And when, uh, uh, when that blood was sprinkled on the Day of Atonement, when it was sprinkled toward the mercy seat and on the mercy seat, it was a testimony that a life has been given because the wages of sin is death. And so, a, and the life of the flesh is in the blood. And so when that uh, blood was sprinkled, it was a picture of a life that had been given. Now, Jesus shed his blood on the cross of Calvary. His life was given for us. His blood was poured out, not accidentally spilled but poured out he gave his blood as a 
satisfaction to the Father. You know, I've told you this before, and I, I don't mean to get to, to run in too many rabbits, but I've told you this before, but it's have you ever uh, had a bank loan? Nobody here has. You've never had a bank loan. But, but if you have, you know, sometimes you get to the point where it's time to renew the loan or pay it off. And if you can't pay it off, they will expect you to at least pay something on it and then refinance it. But I have found myself in a position before where I couldn't pay anything on it. I couldn't even pay the interest. And so I had to refinance that loan. Well, that's kind of what was happening in the Old Testament in those animal sacrifices. Year by year, the loan is rolled forward, but nothing is being paid on the loan. There's no interest being paid, no principal being paid, and the debt gets larger and larger every year until one day Jesus said, I will accept no more animal sacrifices. And Jesus said, Lo, I come. Mm -hmm. In the volume of the book, it's written of me. And he gives himself as a sacrifice and lays down on that cross and they beat the nails into his hands and feet and they pierce his side and the blood of Jesus Christ paid that sin debt. Once for all. It's not rolled forward anymore. It's paid. When he said it is finished. He meant it is finished. It's blood that satisfied God. It satisfied the dead. It's cleansing blood. Our sins are gone. When you trust Jesus as your Savior your sins are gone. You say, where do they go? I'm not sure, but I'm not looking for them. I don't want to find them, do you? The, the little song we used to sing years ago, uh, uh, my sins are gone. They're underneath the blood of the cross on Calvary. And I'm glad my sins are gone. Let me ask you a question. When you turn the light off, where does, the, where does the light go? Or when you flip it back on, where does the darkness go? I don't know. But I, I know my sins are gone. <laughs> They're gone just like that. And we're thankful for God's saving grace. Well, there's other symbolisms in our, uh, our partaking of the Lord's table. There are other pictures or messages that we can... Get And I, I'd like for you to just think about these things uh, and, and just uh, think about how we partake of the Lord's Supper and how Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper. The first thing the Bible says is that he took bread and broke it. It was Jesus who broke it. It wasn't his enemies who broke it. It was Jesus. He's giving himself. There's that picture. And it was he who poured the wine. And the uh, elements that we use are small because that's a 
picture showing us that it, this is not about a physical meal. It's speaking of something higher and better and greater. It's speaking of the death, burial, resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Another thing we do when we partake of the Lord's table, we serve, listen to that word, we serve the brethren and then we serve one another. So there's another element to the, uh, the Lord's table that is important for us to understand. And there's another picture here. There's a division. There are people who can partake and people who cannot partake. And there is a gospel message right there, is it not? A gospel message. Those who have trusted Jesus Christ as their Savior are partaking in remembrance of Him. And those who have not are excluded. And that will be an eternal exclusion unless they come to Him in repentance and faith. And then here's another thing that uh, I didn't come up with this. I read it somewhere. I think Spurgeon may have said it, but there are leftovers. You never use it all up, do you? There's always some left over. And that's important because we want everybody to know that with Jesus, there's always more than enough. And so Jesus said, and I've already said this, that he would not drink again of this fruit of the vine until he drank it anew with us in the kingdom. And uh, this cup that we're talking about here, the cup of wine, was the fourth cup at the end of the Passover feast. And, uh, and it was drunk at the end of the feast. And then they sang the Hallel, which was the last, uh, the Psalm 115 through Psalm 118. And uh, the Hallel means the praise. The praise to God. Hallelujah. You get that? Hallelujah. It's a good word. I ought to make you all repeat it. <laughs> it's a good word. Hallelujah is a good word. Every time you say it, you are saying praise to Jehovah. Praise to Jehovah. I was listening to uh, uh, Brother Michael preach this morning, and my heart was saying, praise to Jehovah. Hallelujah. The wonderful truth that we have been saved by the amazing grace of God who loved us so much that he poured out his hatred against sin on Jesus. So that we wouldn't have to endure it. Isn't that amazing? Oh, blessed be his name. Hallelujah. And, uh, and so let me just point out, uh, and I, I know I showed you Psalm 118 last week, but Psalm 117 is uh, wonderful. It invites the Gentiles in. And so this is what Jesus and his disciples 
are singing when they went out into the Mount of Olives. They're singing this wonderful thing. Psalm 117 says, Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Laud him, all you peoples. For his merciful kindness is great toward us, and the truth of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. And then 118, Psalm 118, it says, For his mercy endures forever. It says it five times in this psalm. And uh, I, I won't take time to read the entire psalm, but uh, listen to what Jesus is singing now. This is the night when he's going to be arrested. He's going to be examined all night long. And the next morning, he's going to be hanging on the cross. And this is what he's singing the night before he goes to the cross. The Lord is my strength and song, and he has become my salvation. The stone which the builders rejected. Now, he's already quoted that to those religious leaders, had he not? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This it was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day. You could stop right there. This is the day. Jesus had been saying all along, uh, and the scripture had been telling us all along the life of Jesus that his hour had not yet come. But the Hallel, the song that they were singing said, this is the day. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. And he says, save now, I pray, O Lord. I pray, send now prosperity. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. God is the Lord, or God is Jehovah, and he has given us light. Bind the sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar. You are my God and I will praise you. You are my God and I will exalt you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. For his mercy endures forever. These are the words that the disciples and Jesus and all people were singing at that time at the end of the Passover. It had to be a time of joy and reminder and celebration to the people of Israel because they were remembering their deliverance from Egyptian bondage, but it had to have also been a source of encouragement to Jesus. He's, he's singing this. This is the day. This is the day. You're on course. You're on the right path. This is the day. It had to be an encouragement to him. And how he must have savored those words and clung to those words. So that brings us to verse number 27. And uh, verse number 27, this is begins our sermon tonight, Jesus' agony in Gethsemane. And, uh, and he begins with another prophetic insight from Zechariah. 
And I've been struck uh, how many quotes, how many prophecies came from Zechariah that were fulfilled in Jesus last week on earth. That, isn't that, or before his death on the cross? Isn't that amazing? There were several of them, and he quotes again one he, in uh, Zechariah 13, 7, Then Jesus said unto them, All you will be made to stumble because of me this night. And here's why. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. And so we are seeing that Jesus already knows and he's telling his followers that they are going to be scattered. He knows that they will abandon him. But then he says in verse number 28, now listen to this. But after I have been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. Let that soak for just a moment. Jesus lived by faith. You get that? Did you ever think of that? Jesus lived by faith. He came into the world and took upon himself human flesh counting on the promise that the Father had made to him that he would not abandon him. Listen to Psalm 16. This is what Peter, Peter quotes Psalm 16 on the day of Pentecost. It's in here. I can't figure out if it's the Old or New Testament, but it's in here. All right, now listen. Listen to Psalm 16. And beginning in verse number 8, he said, I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be moved. Therefore, my heart is glad, and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will rest in hope. That's another way of saying my flesh will rest in faith. My flesh will rest in hope. For you will not leave my soul in Sheol, the grave. Nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. Listen to the next verse. You will show me the path of life. If that's not resurrection, I don't know what is. It, you will show me the path of life. In your presence, ascension is full of joy. At your right hand, seated with the Father. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Isn't that amazing? That's what Jesus was living on. He's living on faith. His Father has promised him that he would not abandon him to the grave, that he would not rot in the grave, that he would raise him up, that he would ascend back where he was, and he would be seated by him 
at the right hand, at his right hand on his throne. And God did it, but Jesus never doubted it. Now listen, Jesus is running. Listen to what I'm saying. He is running the obstacle course of faith to completion for us. He's about to go into the darkest moments of his life. From eternity until that point, he's never experienced anything like he's about to experience. He is going to go through the Garden of Gethsemane with all of its darkness and he's going to come out on the other side not having failed although the spirit was willing and the flesh was weak. He came through. That's his active obedience. Do you know what he was doing? He's living out faith for us. Because we ain't got it. I'm serious with you. I think Pastor Art was talking Wednesday night, or maybe it was in his prayer, talking about how that God has answered a prayer for us. And we, even when we were praying for it, we didn't hardly believe it, you know. Just like uh, uh, Michael was talking about Peter being released from prison and going to the place where the church was making uh, uh, fervent prayer for him and knocked on the door and I said, no, it can't be Peter. Peter's in jail. Do you know how weak our faith is? It's not the amount of our faith that saves us. It's the object of our faith. As a matter of fact, I'll go further than that. It's the faith of Jesus that saves us. <laughs> He's the one. He is the one who has lived out perfect faithfulness to God. He trusted God from glory to earth. Through all his life for 33 and however much years he lived on the earth. And he trusted him all the way to the cross. Even when he hung there abandoned alone. He stayed. He did not. They offered him something to deaden the pain. He's, he refused it. He wants to suffer the pain for all the sins of his people. And he did it. He went into the grave and out the other side. As the only one to ever cross the finish line of the obstacle course of faith without failing. And make it all the way home. Now, listen to this. Listen to this. Hebrews chapter 12. Therefore, we also, since we are 
surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us and let us run with endurance the race. It's the faith race. It's the obstacle course of faith. It's the one Jesus is running. The obstacle course of faith that is set before us looking unto that preposition right there is very important looking unto jesus he is the author and the finisher of our faith he completed it all the way do you get it i don't know if you get it because you didn't say hallelujah it's <laughs> He completed our faith. Now look at, what, look at what the writer of Hebrews is saying here. He says, looking unto Jesus. That's important, that preposition, unto. Let me, let me give you this illustration. If you were in serious financial trouble, that couldn't happen here. But if you were, and I were a rich man, that couldn't happen here. And, and I knew about your financial troubles, and I said to you, look at me. What would that mean? But listen, what if I found out about your financial troubles, and I said, just look to me? That's what Jesus is saying. I've run the race. I went to the grave and I came out on the other side victorious. And I did it so you can do it. And when you receive salvation from me, you're going to get the complete package. So, Jesus says, where am I? He said, but after I have been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. Now notice, notice how weak the disciples are. The disciples had three promises in that short sentence. <laughs> three promises that could have encouraged them. Three promises that would have kept them faithful. He says, first of all, I'm going to be raised. Secondly, you're going to survive. All right? Isn't that what he said? He said, uh, he said, after I've been raised, I will go before you. He's implying, at least, that uh, they're still going to be alive. And the third thing is, you're going to be restored. I'll go before you to Galilee. You guys are going to abandon me. But I'm going to go before you to Galilee, and I'm going to meet with you again. Now, if it, it's true that they all forsook him, but I wonder if they could have taken that to heart. Would they have? And then, not only that, uh, he takes three of his closest followers, Peter, James, and John, Further with him, he lets the 
other disciples sit in one place, and then he takes Peter, James, and John further with him. Then he goes further and falls on his face, but they couldn't stay awake while he prayed. This is the guy and the guys that said, though all would forsake you, I won't. I never will deny you. But they couldn't stay awake while he prayed. And, uh, and, and the fact, the very fact that Peter was so vocal and adamant in his double objection, that just made his failure even more spectacular. Mm -hmm. Peter denied him because the flesh is weak. The spirit is willing. When Peter said, I won't deny you, I believe he meant it from the very depths of his heart. But the flesh is weak. You cannot trust your flesh. You can trust Jesus. You cannot trust your flesh. You dare not trust your flesh. I think that's what Paul uh, meant when he said in uh, Philippians chapter 3, he said, uh, we are the circumcision that rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. No confidence in the flesh. Well, now we get to Gethsemane. Verse 32. Then they came to a place which was called Gethsemane, the press. He said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took Peter, James, and John with him. Now listen to the language here. He began to be troubled and deeply distressed. Then he said to them, my soul is exceeding sorrowful, even unto death. Here we come to the obstacle of Gethsemane. And something different is happening here. Jesus has all through these events on the week that he has been in Jerusalem. All through this he has been fairly calm. He's been forceful at times. He has spoken out at times. But he's been fearless he has uh, been assured and he's faced every obstacle without any nervousness or fear or trembling or bashfulness. Nothing. But as he comes into Gethsemane, something different happens. A strange heaviness and burden falls on him and he seems to have become overwhelmed with sorrow and bowed down with grief. Matthew uses the same terminology. He was distressed. It was a word that meant heavy sorrow or great grief. Luke's account, he uses the word Agony. He began to be in an 
agony. Agon, it is a battle term. It's hand-to-hand combat. It's a fight for the life. That's the language that we're using. He began to pray. And then in Luke, he began to pray more earnestly until his sweat became as great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Now, I don't know. I've always preached that it was blood. I don't know. The scripture does say as great drops of blood. So I won't get into that uh, uh, dispute. But but he was in great agony. He was fighting something here. And Mark says that he was, uh, that he began to be greatly amazed. And that means that he was utterly astounded, speechless in terror. Can you just, can you imagine a, a little innocent child seeing some horrible, murderous creature and they're so frightened that they can't even scream? That's the picture here. And Jesus is enduring that. Oh, why is it? What is it that's going on? I mean, what's wrong with him? Is he, is he sick? Well, no, I, I don't think Jesus was ever sick a day in his life. Was, you know, I mean, sickness would have to come from some sort of impurity. I don't believe he was, had any impurities about him. I doubt that he was ever sick a day in his life. Is, is it because he's afraid he's fight, fighting the devil? Is he fearful of Satan? Is Satan about to overcome him? And I'll have to say no to that one as well. He has already abundantly proven that the old serpent is no match for him. No match for him whatsoever. He's ready to crush his evil head and cast him out. Is he offended? Is that what it is? Is all this rejection and all these bad things that the religious leaders have been trying to do to him, is that it? Is he offended? Is his, has he had his feelings hurt? Well, no. He encountered every form of rejection that men can contrive. Yet, he still had his purpose and set his face toward the cross without without even a doubt. Well, you think he's afraid to die. Is that it? Well, no, he's been carefully orchestrating everything to bring it up to that point of death. And he's been talking about it to his disciples. It's not death that's the problem. It has to be this. He calls it a cup. He went a little further and fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, (coughs) but what you will. It's a cup. There's a cup here. 
And I want to I, I want to point this out too. This the this account of the agony in Gethsemane only occurs in three of the Gospels: Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John skips it. He gives the prayer, uh, John 17, Jesus' high priestly prayer, and then they go into Gethsemane. And so he, or not Gethsemane, but the Judas uh, betrays him. And so uh, we, we don't see this in John. But there's, I think there's a reason for that. John is displaying Jesus. He's writing G, an account of Jesus to prove his deity. And so John's all about the deity of Christ, but Matthew's about the king of the Jews, and Mark is about God's suffering servant, and Luke is about God's perfect man. And so all those have humanity about them, and this is something that's taking place with his humanity, not with his deity. And so he is facing a cup. A cup is being extended to him, and it has to be the cup of the wrath of God. Philippian, or excuse me, Psalm chapter 11, verse number 6. Psalm 75, verse number 8. Isaiah 51. I'm going to read you this one. Isaiah 51 and verse 17. Now, these are all uh, talking about the cup of God's fury and God's wrath. But verse number 17 says, Awake, awake, stand up, O Jerusalem. You have drunk at the hand of the Lord the cup of his fury. You have drunk the dregs of the cup of trembling and drained it out. And then verse number 22 Thus says your Lord, the Lord and your God, who pleads the cause of his people. Listen, see, I have taken out of your hand the cup of trembling, the dregs of the cup of my fury. You shall no longer drink it. I say hallelujah. This is the cup. That Jesus so dreads the cup full of God's anger and fury against sin. Jesus has never felt that. He's never felt the anger of his father. He's never experienced the hatred of his father. And his father hates sin. Yes, but he hates all those who do iniquity. The psalmist says in Psalm chapter 5. He is being offered this cup. He has to take this cup that is going to be a separation between holy God and the sins of man. He's going to take that sin upon himself. And he treads it. The hatred of God for sin is before him. And he has to drink the cup to its dregs. Oh, how he must have dreaded it. How the innocent, pure 
sinless heart of Christ must have drawn back from that cup. The lowest, nastiest, most hellish sins that men can commit are open before his tender eyes. He's repulsed. He's grieved and terrified. And from the depths of his sinless humanity, the anguish cry arises from his deepest soul. Abba, Father, all things are possible with you. Take this cup from me. But nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. And he took the cup. He suffered right here probably is much more suffering and we rarely talk about it but there's probably much more suffering right here than he endured on the cross. The cross was visible for sinners to see how God hated sin but this is in the soul of Jesus. Agony. But here's how much he loved us. He endured the cross. Mm -hmm. Despising the shame. Mm -hmm. And went into the grave. And out the other side. Mm -hmm. Into the glory. Into the gl glory world. Amen. Into the throne. Mm -hmm. Of God. Blessed be his name. Mm -hmm. Father thank you. For these truths. Please help us to see them. To feel them. How often we dabble in sin or giggle at it or ignore it. But help us to remember it brought terror to the heart of our Savior and fetched a bloody sweat from his brow. How can we, how can we play at sin when we have such a wonderful Savior? Grant us that we would turn from sin, repenting constantly and leaning on that mercy that endures forever.